Sitting is the base. Oh yeah, that's what I have too. And uh, in the in my book, it's on one seventy four. Yeah, I have a bookmark. Sitting in the bay. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, it's also in the yeah, in the chapter of getting wet. I think you are right. Yes. Okay. So, um, Alan, would you say a few words about Joko Beck for Emily? Emily comes to Zen writing, but she hasn't been here before. Oh, gosh. You I haven't, haven't, have you, Emily? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll say what I know, which isn't much, and then uh, you and Nancy can add. Uh, well, Joko Beck, for one thing, was uh, our teacher's teacher. And um, she she was... Uh, I guess she was she Rinzai Rinzai tradition. I think she was both. She I was think. both Rinzai yeah. and Soto tradition, and she was uh, very non-traditional in some ways. I mean, very traditional in some ways, but in others, not very non-traditional. And she uh, she added um, a psychological component, hmm. uh, feeling like. Um, uh, uh, have you ever heard the term spiritual bypass that, that you really needed to, to be aware of what was going on with yourself psychologically? It was actually helpful on, on your spiritual path. Makes she sense. wasn't also married to forms. Yeah. In her training, she learned a very formal approach, but she didn't. She threw things out that she thought were extraneous toward, um, the practice, which is really the practice to end suffering and to be able to look honestly at what you're doing. But kept enough forms that, uh, like Peg refers to it as, to have a container so that yeah. you know you're in the middle of, you're doing something, something. So we sit for 10 minutes and then we read. And then we... Um, we write for 10 minutes and then we discuss and the writing's usually on some kind of thing. I, though I want to read something, we're going to uh, do it a, a little different. I'm going to read something. Um, we do this thing called close reading where we oh, read. We have some new people, MZT. Oh, you're letting people in. I thought people were magically just getting in. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm going to read this. This is um, kind of neat, neat. It is very neat, actually. What is the value? Oh, of Hi. Are you in Mexico or United States now? Hi, I'm in Mexico. Okay. Well, glad you're here. What is the value of this kind of close reading? Is it an endangered art? Close reading was very, very close to the heart of what Amy and I did at the University of Chicago. At other schools, students read a play from Shakespeare each week. Amy would teach King Lear for a quarter and every line was read aloud and discussed. If you wanna learn from the text and not only learn about it, 
you can't learn just from argument and ammunition. That's the word. You have to learn what it says and what it means and why the author might have put things the way rather than some other way. It's also to learn by going slowly how a book wants to be read, if one can put it provocatively. To read a great text, one has to live with it and have, have it dwell with you. You do this in the belief that it just might teach you something you might want to know. Just a second. I have to turn this off. Sorry. You might you do this in the belief that it just might teach you something you really want to know, but might not otherwise learn. To do that, you have to slow down, ponder the words. It's only in this way that a book will really open up to you, as opposed to fitting into your preconceived notions of what the world is like. And it is very much in danger today. What we do at Chicago is really precious. So what we do wherever we are is really precious. So anyway, we're going to sit for 10 minutes. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Description? I've never read a description really like that. Okay, we'll start, we read in alphabetical order and we'll start with Donna. Okay, what page are we on? We're on page 173, sitting is the base. Julie, uh, in the books it's 174. Okay. Oh, thank you. I was looking for an entire chapter. Okay, sitting is the base. We sit because the sitting process itself interferes with our habit of being a victim or a perpetrator. As we watch those thoughts and label them, sitting reveals a repeating pattern that begins to be obvious. We sense something that we didn't sense before. That's why sitting is the base. Sitting enables all those patterns to become clear to us. At some point, the patterns are so clear and our suffering so obvious that we don't have any choice. We reach a point where we have to sit. And people can break in at any point, Emily, okay? Oh. So this is always a question like, do you really have to sit? Why does the Dalai Lama sit for four hours a day? And Alan's been taking a couple of courses with a man, Analio, and how much does he sit? Like 12 hours a day or something? Gosh. I don't know, 2 a.m. 2 a.m. to I can't remember anymore. Like two to six, eight thirty, and then every evening from five thirty to nine thirty, something like that. Yeah, incredible yeah. ten hours. We don't have to do that. Okay, <laughs> not tonight. <laughs> Maybe never. Uh, okay, with time and practice, our ability to stay with pain gets stronger, and the external irritations seem weaker takes a long, long time. 
But what else are you going to do? The alternative is to spend a lifetime caught in confusion and, ir and irritation. Without practice over time, it usually gets worse, not better. And Emily? Uh, with practice, our external irritations weaken, but they don't go away. Any degree of practice is wonderful. I've got a lot of practice still to do, but my life stays in a very different state than it used to. That is worth practicing for. What do you feel like right at this second? The only thing that matters is to experience that and try to do no harm as you battle through what you're battling through. A lot of factors make this turning possible. What you read makes a difference. Whether you sit every day makes a difference. There are lots of things that assist practice, but we don't really want to do any of them. That's why continuity of practice is so important to sit when you just think it's pointless, to label your thoughts, even if you think this is the dumbest thing you ever heard of. Each of these things increases your clarity so you can begin to see what you're doing and feeling. If you don't do it, that's fine. You'll suffer for a while. It's okay. <laughs> Gail, I think you're next. Oh no, you read. I think I'm next. I'm with the other Gail. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Confidence in what is. The more you're able to stay with those painful feelings, the more you gain self-confidence in your ability to handle things. Practice is more difficult when you're just struggling to survive. But even when we are in a place when we are not focused on getting our basic needs met, we still struggle, sometimes just as hard. There are all degrees of devastation. With practice, e even if the level of devastation gets a little worse, our confidence begins to build. We know we can be okay, at least up to a certain point. We have a lot of confidence. <coughs> Total confidence would mean we were 100% comfortable with life being what it is, and us being what we are. I have a lot of confidence, but by no means 100%. I could handle just about anything. It doesn't mean I want to, but I know I could. I still notice I can't arising, but it comes and goes more quickly. And... Uh, um, I'll just listen. Okay. Okay. Each time we sit, we view our ability to stay with who we are, which is always painful. Until we can stay there, it's not yet a strong practice. It may be a practice, but it's not a strong practice until we can stay with ourselves as we really are. Who we really are, this true self, is so different from our ideas about who we are. What somebody else did to me, or what I'd like to do to somebody else, 
Learning to be with pen is the heart of practice. Done for this chapter. Uh, now you are muted, Nilda. Do we write now or are we going to go on? Oh, uh, we're going to go on. We, we read until like 8 o'clock. Okay. Oh, okay, so we write at the end of the period. All right. Right, right. All right. Going into the dark. There's a famous Sufi teaching story in which a man loses his keys. Boy, that's me, by the way. <laughs> Let's see how he handles it. He is looking for them under the streetlight when his friend walks by. His friend asks, what are you doing? The man answers, I'm looking for my keys. The friend stops to help him look. They search and dig around for a long while. Finally, the friend asks, are you sure you lost them here? And the man replies, no, I lost them back there somewhere in the dark. <laughs> His friend stops astonished and says, well, then why are you looking for them here? And the man says, it's much easier to see. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just took wrong with that story. <laughs> okay, I think we're starting with Donna again. Yeah, golly. Uh, uh, yeah, normally this story is told, it's Mullah Nasruddin, who's sort of a wise fool of the Sufi tradition. Oh, okay. This is what we do with our life. We have a problem sitting in the dark. We don't really know what to do about it. So we look where it's light. In other words, we look where we're used to looking. Whether it's a problem with relationships, work, or whatever, we tend always to look and act according to what we're used to. And do you think that the man found his keys under the street light? No way. Often we don't even mind if we can't find the keys. What we want is an easy way to look. <laughs> Can I say that this reminds me of all the ways I want to blame somebody else for something that's happening to me? <laughs> I mean, I, I really think of, you know, um, blame as a way of not looking at the real cause, but trying to project it onto somebody else, you know? Yeah. Anyway, this would have made me think of. There is a darkness, there is a darkness out of which everything comes, an endless creative potential that's pouring out of our life at every second. Practice is about going into that darkness, but we're not interested in that. We're interested in looking at life in a way that doesn't disturb us, it may not solve the problem, but for for human beings, that's not really a big issue. Often we would rather be safe than free. I think Emily. Emily, yeah. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> oh. uh, we want to stay where we're used to. Just think of anything in your life. And notice that the only way you handle it is the way you're used to handling it. 
we tend to look at the surface of things. For instance, hardly a week goes by without somebody saying, why do you have so much ritual at the Zen center? Having ritual or not having ritual, that's not the problem. That's looking at the surface of things. Some people, since the Zen center has become relatively big, don't like it as well as when it was small. That is also looking at the surface of things. We look the way we're used to looking. Because the core belief is a fixed, rigid assemblage of thoughts, it keeps running our lives in a very false way. That's what we do. We don't necessarily like our core belief, but we're used to it. To disrupt it or anything else we're used to is frightening. We don't want to change very much. We don't want our partner to change. We don't want to have to look at ourselves in a way that would wake us up and make us change. So earlier in the book, she talked a lot about core beliefs. And, and in this chapter, or the last one, where she says, I can't, that was a core belief that she's still holding on to that kind of uh, imprisons her in a sense to or keeps her away from embracing life right now or stopping her growth or doing all kinds of things. As human beings, we like things to be fixed. We're always trying to control the world so we can be safe. But in doing so, we make the world very small, seemingly more manageable, like a pigeonhole. This disposition is very noticeable in our relationships. When we get into relationships, we tend to do what we've always done. We put them into the same mold and we take a look and we deliver our opinion and that's that. Our relationship may become sterile, quarrelsome, polite, or, or dead, but we stay in our same way of being. It doesn't work. My mom used to say that, that uh, Without therapy, a person usually gets divorced and then marries the same person over again. So, <laughs> to me, that's an example of what she's talking about. There's, there's actually a lovely article with a very um, involved name called a Sadomasochistic Approach to Relentless Hope, um, written by a Harvard psych, uh, psychiatrist. And that is essentially what you just said, that we have these things in our lives that we continue to reenact and reenact and reenact with different marriage partners, but it's the same exact reenactment. We're trying to heal something. And we do one of three things. It, we either take a good person and turn them into a bad person. We, we pick a bad person so, you know, we don't have to do all the work of changing anybody. Or we both go to therapy and heal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with your mom. Okay. Yeah, it, I'll tell her. <laughs> what, was, your mom, was your mom a therapist, Kim? She, she was trained as a psychiatric social worker. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I also agree with Nelda. Um, I think the core beliefs, um, at least in my case, I mean, very often they're kind of formed when I was really small. And so as a result, I think I've married my mother a few times. 
<laughs> you know, it, it's sort of like these beliefs are somehow, um, oh, cemented in at a very young age. And like um, Nelda was saying, you keep trying to solve it, really coming from the same age, <laughs> you know, the, the same coping mechanisms, you know, that I used when I was very, very young. Uh, very often, um, I've noticed in my adult relationships kept coming up now that I'm reflect on it. Hmm. A relationship between teachers any relationship, especially a long-term or committed relationship, is a relationship between teachers. And the first thing a teacher needs to do in any relationship is to see what goes on inside themselves. If something is disturbing me in my relationship, my first impulse is to look under the streetlight and say, well, that's, that's, uh, Nancy, that's impulse. Oh, impulse. Oh, thank yeah. you. My first impulse is to look under the streetlight and say, well, there's something wrong with the other person. And we skip the only part of it that matters, which is, what really is going on inside me? Looking under the streetlight can look good from the outside. You're being so industrious. You're looking very hard. But it's a pseudo-activity. There's no real movement. We can only tell what's truly going on when we turn back to ourselves. You know, and that's the same thing, by the way, with worry and guilt. They're wasted emotions um, because guilt makes you feel like you're doing something about it when, when you're not. And also worry is a lot of activity not knowing what an outcome is going to be. So you said I could speak whenever, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> hey, somebody hurts your feelings and you don't want to react. All of us have some habitual way we shut out what feels like, what that feels like, until everything is kind of numb. I'll just ignore it. I'm not going to get into it. But there's a big difference between ignoring something and experiencing it. When we ignore something, it's a form of reaction. If I ignore you and whatever you're doing that displeases me, that's still a reaction and a painful one at that. It may be really polite. It may be really polite. Some people may stay married 50 years just being polite. <laughs> that's a graveyard with a lot of bones rattling around under the surface. Often we don't look into the painful places because we're afraid of stirring things up. We don't want things to change or end, even if they're not working. Whenever we lose somebody we don't want to lose, there will be grief. But what we often do is turn grief into anguish through blaming them and blaming ourselves. We force ourselves to get very, very busy doing something else. Yet the only real thing would be to feel it. You need, to be the, you need to be the grief and embrace it like you would a baby. Just let it be there. Emily. My turn? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Whenever a relationship has any tension in it, anything unresolved, any dishonesty, there's pain there. That's the only place to look. 
not at what's wrong with the other person. That doesn't help anything. They should be different or it was all my fault. If only I had been blah, blah, blah. To experience pain produces transformation. It doesn't necessarily mean the pain goes away, but it's as though it had a big space around it. It's different and you know it's different, but we don't wanna do that. It's like going into the dark. We don't wanna look in the dark of ourselves. And that's why practice is not some formula. Dharma talks are one thing, but the actual practice is the thing that makes our life have depth and richness. You can't just trot out your pre-formulated understanding. To have relationships work, to be able to experience <clears throat> pain or grief is a growing maturity within ourselves. It's a struggle. <clears throat> Can somebody else read? <coughs> I'm having allergies. Yeah, who's next? Yeah, Kim. It's a struggle. We don't want to do that. We want to stay under the street lamp. It isn't about making something that hurts us go away, but about the space that opens up. The hurt isn't going to finish you off. Practice concerns the growth of your life such that it's bigger, more spacious. It has more room for you and for the person you're in difficulty with. That's really maturing, and like all maturing, there's no set formula. I think um, something I personally struggled with a long time was not really understanding that the hurt wasn't going to finish me off. I always presumed it would. Uh, so, and that it was caused by something, uh, someone, something that wanted to get you. Like, no, I think I had all these people die within three weeks and I finally I figured out they weren't dying to to hurt me <laughs> but go on Emily yeah no the darkness I'm sorry I, I'm, I'm sorry I have a question um, here or in the previous page it says that uh, you have to experience the pain or something like that yeah so my question is how to do that? Oh. Or and how do you understand? Ellen and I are reading another book that's all about that, too. Nancy, too. And Nancy, yeah. How do you do that? That's such a great question. How do you? So one of the, one of the steps is, and I was trying to, to show this to my wife, was um, let's say this is causing the pain, okay? The first step is simply this, to look at it, you know, as opposed to dropping it or avoiding it or understanding it, but just looking toward it and say, oh, this is causing me pain. And that's really a big step. Isn't that what we're reading about, Ellen, Nancy? Yeah. And, 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 and like Jean was saying this morning or whenever, uh, that uh, often you you can feel that feel it in your body, you, emotional pain you can feel actually in your body. And then and then you feel it. You recognize that you're feeling it. Yeah. Um, I noticed that I when I have a lot of um, anxiety toward like a meeting or something, 
I'll start to have pain in my lower back. And as soon as I recognize that, the pain goes away. It's really, it's really goofy. So I'll, you know, I'll go a week with this pain and then I'll think, oh, I'm feeling that because I, I'm anticipating this struggle of one, you know, one sort or another, and then the pain goes away. But Emily, you were starting to say something. Do you remember? I think that one thing I've found helpful in the past with um, sitting with pain is um, if I find that sitting with my pain is, is too painful, I try to narrow it down. I try to break it into pieces. Um, and I try to just focus on one little piece. Uh, and sometimes it makes me feel so bad that I have to stop and then I have to go back a day or two later. And sometimes it's very quick. I'm able to get through the, the pain. Can you remember an example that you can talk about? Yeah. Um, so I was facing this thought of I am destined to always um, couple with men who I will hurt in some way. So that's a lot to unpack, right? That's a lot of different pieces. Um, one piece could be, um, am I hurting other people? Um, why am I hurting other people? Why do I think I'm hurting other people? Um, what could be hiding in the darkness that's causing me to hurt other people? I guess that's, does that make sense? Yeah, Emily, does it, it sounds as though what you're saying is, you know, the pain that we feel, I mean, there's physical pain, obviously, if you're ill or, you know, you had an accident or something, but we're talking about emotional pain that's kind of caused by maybe a thought. Yeah. Sounds like that, like a thought you're having and you're believing it. And it's actually really looking at that thought in a way and kind of examining, you know, right. the thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about makes me think about um, grief, mourning, like if you've lost, somebody's died, that kind of grief, because uh, that grief, I mean, it is real intense in the beginning, but I mean, it actually, it flows and it, it really kind of comes and goes. So you might be in real intense grief at one point and then at another point, it's sort of more of a little flowing, it changes how it feels like in your body changes. Yeah, it's stored in your, exactly the same. It's stored in your body, these emotional hurts I found that my body is actually hanging on to it physically, you know, and um, you'll feel a you know, tightness yeah. in your chest or your throat will close up or you feel like you're going to scream or cry or something. You know, it could be anything. But, <clears throat> you know, I, if, I'm, if I'm looking at the thought sometimes it helps me if I just allow myself to stop thinking, stop um, focusing on the thought and just feel what the body's doing. 
and then it's kind of like what you say. It's sort of like this energy moves, and then it moves off, which is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and then sometimes in the aftermath, I'll get clarity. Oh, that's because, you know, when I was five, I felt like that. Mm-hmm. That's what it reminds me of. You know, or I'll get something. You know, but um, it's it's really interesting how our believing our thoughts manifest is, is this tremendous emotional pain sometimes. The second arrow is Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nancy. Oh, no. I just want to say that uh, the thoughts are like the second arrows add up to the pain. There you go. So Buddha talked about these two arrows, the first one being the arrow that hits you, and the second one is the pain you attach to that. Oh, someone's hit me with an arrow or or someone's insulted me. So there's the insult and then the, the way you feel about the insult. For some people, they, they, it can roll off their back and other people, it sticks with them, you know, for the rest of their lives. So yeah, like, the, like the two arrows. Yeah, like grief, you know, you lose somebody that you love. And then the second arrow might be, it's all my fault, or I should have, you know, listened or I should have done something or um you know it could be any number of things that kind of you know you know maybe the thought might be um oh my life will never be the same and it's going to be worse it's horrible now or you know whatever you know yeah <laughs> you know, whatever that thought is <laughs> I think what's helpful to me in the past was to counterbalance like think about the opposite side of the coin like and talk to myself and say, is that really true, that thought? Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, who's reading now? I have no idea. I think it's my turn, right? I think I read in the middle and then Nancy Nancy read turn. something. Yeah. Nancy says it's her turn. Yeah, people wonder how it work on with uh, your relationships in the world relates to the more traditional ways of practice. But what does it mean to be enlightened except to be more and more spacious, holding more and more without crit- criticism, without this criti- criticizing we do? It's an open feeling for something besides yourself. Do we keep going? Yes. All right. Authentic relationships. Understanding our close relationships is the key to everything else. We, um, all we are is relatedness. We're not separate. I don't exist except that there's a rug there for me. And it's that moment of contact with the rug that is my existence. Our existence is just moments of contact. In the present moment, all we can do is to make contact. There isn't any past or future. That somehow makes me think of um, uh, I.E.M. Forster's Only Connect. Uh, I can't remember which novel it was, the, you know, the, the little quote at the very beginning, but... Um, yeah, contact, connection. 
Okay, the moment we make contact creates my life and your life. Ordinarily, we see it as my life bumping up against your life and not always happily. There is nothing in the universe except relatedness. This is a concrete reality we can practice with from morning to night. And we need to do this because understanding our relatedness is the key to the kingdom of awakening. Three, I, heard, I heard something the other day that just completely shifted a paradigm of mine. And it's like, we are not born into the world. You're not born into creation. We are born of creation. And when you just change that little phrase, it brings fully home the idea that we're not separate from the world. Here's the world and we're born into it. Mm. We're actually born of it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was lovely. This is good. It matters the words we use, doesn't it? Yeah. Changes things. Changes. Uh, okay. Three circles. Picture three concentric circles. The first circle, the one closest around the center, is our core belief. The second circle, larger than the first, is the choices and identities we've built that arise out of the core belief. It includes all our guises and roles. We're a helper, a hider, a performer, a, a, a bumbler. We're a teacher, a student, a friend, a parent, a child, a lover, an athlete. We all have different identities. These identities and the behaviors we enact from them, our basic strategies, are what we see running around in that second circle. Uh, and the third circle, the largest yet, is everything we relate to other people, events, and the world around us. Our core belief and basic strategies determine our relationships with everyone and everything in our lives. If my core belief is that I can't be loved, perhaps I'll take on the role of a teacher, a strategy from the second circle, so I can look for love and admiration from the third circle. I think that's where I'll get love. I know instinctively that there is a hole here and I have to get love somewhere. It's an absolute must. We do it within the blink of an eye and we do it all the time. We can't have real relationships with other people when we place demands on them. If I have a demand on you, I'm not interested in you. I'm more interested in getting something. We may have this demanding relationship with our children, our lovers, our partners, or our parents as we grow older. We try to get something from them to satisfy our core belief. You know, this is, um, this is one of the things that uh, I began to look at when I began to question what is love years ago. And um, <clears throat> because I'm a, I'm a daughter, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. And yet when I really looked really, really closely at love, I realized that so much of my love felt conditional. 
It's a hard thing to say, but it was true. Yeah. It was true. And um, how do you mean that? I mean that I expected things and I got disappointed and angry. Oh, conditional in that sense. Oh, okay. A conditional in that sense, yeah. And um uh you know, I, I'd been kind of reflecting over what unconditional love is, because I'd heard in church and in spiritual circles, they say what, you know, God is you know, unconditional love. Well, what the heck is that? Because I realized I've never truly, you know, experienced it fully. I've had moments of it, you know, moments of it, but not as a lived experience, you know, throughout my entire life. And and that was the thing that um, triggered uh, an actually a, 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 a glimpse into reality. That question. Do you think we love ourselves too conditionally? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that that's that's the key. Well, we don't know what we are, and so when I asked that question, I actually had an opening, which <clears throat> showed me. It was energetic. It was a, I guess you could say, a glimpse into reality, and that's the thing that actually brought me to Appamata, because I didn't know what it was. I mean, I knew what it was, but I didn't know how to integrate what I saw. Yeah, you know, that's because so it wasn't like it wasn't like the love that I think of, the human love. It was so much. I, I can't. I can't even go there. It was just so much faster than that so i i asked the question but this is what made me ask the question this noticing about relation and i couldn't have done it without relationship yeah you get that yeah. i couldn't have done that all on my own in some vacuum somewhere gotten any clarity about anything if it hadn't been for my relationships with my close the close people mm. so i have a question um, and, and I, re I really do have this question when we talk about true love. So just as th the best example I can think of, there's a former president in our history who I love, but I can't stand some of the things he does that cause harm, did that cause harm. And I love him. And, and I, 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 so on the one hand, it makes it sound like that's conditional love because I'm saying your your behaviors are harming people, and I that just hurts my heart to to have watched that. Mm -hmm. And I still believe in my heart of hearts that I love him and I wish him well back then and still. And um so is that conditional love or unconditional love? It's kind of, I've also used this example when I talk with friends about how conditional is our love. And what I say is, you know, I have the biggest heart for those people that you see on street corners asking for money. I don't know what their circumstances are. I don't try to guess it. I just, if I have money and at that moment I, I give without like trying to come to a judgment, but doesn't mean I want to take them home with me. And so is that conditional love? I, I'm, I'm trying to decipher all of that. Well, you're talking about the love coming first. So that sounds like it's not conditional. 
Yeah, I don't have to take everyone I love home with me because then the whole world would live in this back little house. <laughs> they don't fit. <laughs> they just don't fit. And not as if you don't, you know, this this love, this uh, immense love or compassion, you know, that I touched into, it didn't reject anything. But at the same time, I could see in very human terms that quite naturally, um, how can you say it? You know, when, when people are behaving in a negative way um, it, and maybe in a harmful way, I mean, you're not condoning it. Do you know what I mean? You're not condoning it, but you're not, you, you don't have to hate. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it's almost like watching something that's confused. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, I've been confused and I would hate for anybody to hate me because of my confusion. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I might not need, you know, an adjustment or maybe, you know, some correction or whatever help. I don't know what I'm saying. All I know is that the unconditional love that I saw, there was nothing outside of it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. However heinous you could think it might be. I knew it was there was nothing outside of it. It was pretty bizarre. And I don't know how to explain it any more than that. You know, I'd leave it to the philosophers and other people who know what they're doing. I don't. Well, I think it's it's like uh, when I'm watching my grandchildren on the playground, and it's usually a bird who will do something that's not okay, <laughs> you know, in his relationship with the other kids. And it's really not okay. And I have to, you know, step in and we have to discuss it, you know. Uh, and uh, I still totally adore him. But, I mean, even though what, what he did is like completely unacceptable, I, 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 I can't, I will never stop loving him, you know. So I, yeah. it's sort of like that. But you might, not, you might not like him at that moment. In that particular moment, I'll probably be annoyed yeah. <laughs> and disappointed, even disappointed, maybe, you know, but, uh, yeah. but I'll never stop loving him. That's grandmother mind. Isn't that what Peg said? There you go. It's well, I'll mind. take it to a, a, a harder example because I came across this enough times in my practice. I have a real hard time with pedophiles. Oh, yeah. I, I just yeah. really do. I just, you know, ugh. Um, and and although I know the psychologically, you know, pedophiles usually molest or 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 sexually abuse someone who is of the age at which they are stunted. So they they can't have adult you know, relationships. So they seek out these children because that's where they're psychologically stunted. And I get that. I don't hate them. I just, it just, it just pains me the harm they cause. But I also see that there was a harm to them. So, you know, this whole, who do, who do you blame? Who do you uh, well, vilify? That and, you just, you but I don't want to bring them home with me. It's, Particularly if I have children, I mean, no. Right. So, so that's that's kind of um, to me like an easier example. But then there's the example of the partner you're married to, or someone you're partnered to, 
and and the relationship's not fulfilling. Well, you don't hate them. You, you just well, gently unweave your together lives, right? Well, the, the thing that I've discovered is that there's no degree of, it seems like there's a degree of difficulty in forgiving. And that comes from our human experience. We have different degrees of, you know, this guy's worse than that one. And, the, you know, the pedophile's the absolute worst or Hitler's worse than, you know, some other political figure. But that's the egoic way of kind of making some sort of a um, degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. But this unconditional love, there is no separation. But there, you're not being asked in a human life to take a pedophile home or, a, you know, or, you know, feed Hitler, you know, invite him to the house and, you know, be all sweet with him. You know, that's in, in human terms, this love is difficult to pull off. And let's just say that maybe there have been some people historically who I believe are awake that did, that do pull it off. But that doesn't mean that they don't see um, action, you know, like action doesn't arise. Do you know what I mean? You know, uh, you, you, you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, you like I, do. I do. Yeah. Well, I think it makes me think, just think about meta practice and, and, and the aspect of it, loving kindness, because you can, uh, and the, uh, the the phrases that we use that, that Peg created, she created them for this very reason, that there's certain people that she had a hard time wishing well, <laughs> you know, and so she so uh, found some some phrases that she could wish for anybody, because even like, oh, I don't know, you know, some of these political figures we can't stand. We all know who you're talking about, yeah. Ellen, when it comes to Peg. <laughs> and so... Uh, but you would still, you would still want them, uh, you know, that their bodies might, all the things you would, in, in meta, you, may your body be at ease, may your heart be open, may your mind be boundless, uh, may we awaken together. That can't, that doesn't do any harm to anybody, but if you could have that well wish, uh, that can only be good for the good, you know. Because if they if they could if that would could be for them, then they wouldn't be causing so much harm in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful, Ellen. I and um, I love that meta um, yeah. that meta chant that we do. But Gail, don't you think you could love unconditionally and still have boundaries? Absolutely, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I thought I heard you saying kind of the opposite, but okay. Um, oh no no I I wasn't saying not have boundaries at all. I'm I'm just saying that in um like like Nelda has boundaries with her unconditional love nothing is resisted. Everything is embraced. That's what I'm saying. Um but that doesn't have anything to do with boundaries because we're kind of okay. because Nelda has boundaries with the homeless. <laughs> Do I? What boundaries do I have with the homeless? Like you're, you're not taking them home. home. <laughs> oh, I'm not taking them home. Yeah, <laughs> boundary. You're not washing their feet. Right, right. I might wash their feet. 
That's a lovely Christian practice. I might do that. I don't know if all of you know this, but Nelda and I and, and some others have been um, assembling 200 bags a month for the homeless, for uh, food and, and drink and stuff. And, and we have to plan on um, January, I think, a date, right? I already have the supply list. I just didn't want to send it to you till our oh. next meeting. But we'll talk about that in okay. action now. Okay. Seems like we should right now, right? Oh, uh, sorry, everyone. I have a meeting now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I have to leave. Could you make uh, me host? I think you're host. Oh, yes. Let me make you host. I will see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope your meeting goes well. Thank you. I need to bow out, too. Okay. It's getting late for you. Everybody, yeah. Bye-bye. Emily is near you. Where, where? No, Emily is in where? New Jersey? New York? San Antonio. <laughs> San Antonio. near <laughs> you, Jim. I'm near you. Okay. Well, very, clo very close to New York. <laughs> I think uh, my parents live close to you, Ellen. Oh, she went away. Okay. Where do they live? They live in Western Massachusetts um, in the Berkshires. Oh, very nice. Okay, we should really, should we just stop here? Yeah. yeah. Because we have, a, rather than rush through to the next heading and write. And so we try to get something from them to satisfy our core belief. So I'll uh, mark that for next week. So can I, we, we've usually been suggesting some kind of theme in terms of our writing. Does anyone want to suggest anything? Is that where we are or did I move the page? Uh, I think that's where we are. Okay. We're on that page, but the first full paragraph. Let's see oh, we're, we're here. We, we, the next paragraph, we're on... We can't have real relationships with other people. When yeah, we okay. There. Okay. Uh, any ideas for, for the writing, or should we just write? I think we should just write. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, 10 minutes. Well, who'd like to start? 
What what are we doing? Are we just kind of we're going to share what we wrote or what we thought about or either read it or talk or okay. either or both. Mm-hmm. Do I have to start? Yeah. Yes. Why don't you start? Okay, so here's the drawing. There's the drawing. Oh, wow. Does it really need to be hard and painful? Is no pain, no gain the only way? When we look and confront the dark side, there is pain. Sometimes that doesn't feel good, but eventually it does. Or sometimes we seem to just be punishing ourselves. I'm not convinced that we have to be mean to ourselves. And one of the things that came flashed in my mind is, is it used to be, um, done in couples therapy that, that they would like complain about each other. And then they found that wasn't so useful. So, um, so Joko Beck, you know, talked about the pain, the pain of practice and so forth. And, and that, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, um, to what extent is that needed? We started out reading about uh, sitting, but sitting almost like 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 punishment. You know, I think I think yeah. we hear about the pain so often because the joy of practice is, you know, so lovely and so easy to talk about. The hard part is talking about the pain, but they're they're both equally. Um, practice edges in terms of attachment and, you know, pushing something away. I, I love to sit when I'm just in bliss and I'd love to sit in bliss, you know, hours and hours, however many times this man that um, Ellen mentioned sits if it's oh. all bliss, but then that would just be attachment, right? Because I'd be sitting for that bliss. Um, so I, I think we just seem to talk so much about the pain because it's the it's the harder part of the two i think um and and again help me uh, everyone with this because we talk about pain which is life there's pain in life people die there's the pain of giving birth to a child there's all kinds of pains of disease and so on it's the suff- it's the suffering I-, I think we we sometimes use those two words interchangeably but aren't they meant to mean different things that the pain is the first dagger and the suffering is the second dagger the well, one- actually the suffering the way i understand it is really dukkha which is a wheel out of balance it's not pain in the sense of of the pain of the second arrow or the first arrow or whatever it's, it's not that kind it's not sickness old age and death those are inevitable but it's it's our so it's our the way we see them is that the way you guys understand it suffering yeah yeah that's how i understand suffering as what we attach to life you know birth old age so death. the same thing can happen to two people and to one it really throws them off. And for the other, he takes it with the grain, he or she with a grain of sand with, you know, like with ease. Yeah. I think that uh, it's funny. I think back on how I used to interact with animals, 
puppies, kittens, you know, birds. When I was a child, I wanted so much to hug and play with them. And I didn't realize um, now as an adult, sometimes you have to wait for them to come to you. And if they don't come to you, you have to be okay with wanting so desperately to pet them or love them. And they just don't want that. <laughs> um, so I think of the people in terms of that too. Um, because I think I used to, I was taught to love conditionally and I did that for a long time. And uh, it just was like rolling a rock up a hill. It would just come back and crush me. And, um, so that's kind of an insight that I got today. I think that um, in everything, it's good to step back and not really, and examine what are my expectations and are they reasonable? Uh, and who and gets to determine that in relationship, Emily? What is the expectation? No, no. Who gets to determine if your expectations are reasonable in an interpersonal relationship? I mean, you got me started on the whole relationship thing. I wrote about that, too, because um, your expectations may be perfectly reasonable in an intimate relationship or a friendship or any relationship but the person you're dealing with may always may generally feel they're unreasonable and so who gets to determine that what's the middle way with that i think that's compromise um, or just kind of discussing this is what i see and this is what i would want and they you hit the ball to them and they return the ball with either, yeah, that sounds great, or, oh, I hadn't thought of that, or no. You know? So it's, and I think it changes from, you know, year to year and moment to moment sometimes. I was, um, I visited my parents on Christmas and I'm trying recently to come to a place of um, understanding and peace with them. Uh, they're almost 80. And uh, I think this past year, I've spent a, a lot of time suffering about my worry, my fear that they would never change and they would always suffer, that they would die suffering um, mentally, you know. And I think with this reading, it kind of helped me verbalize that I, I realized I don't have to carry um, the heavy weight of resentment and guilt and shame. I don't have to place an expectation on my parents that they will fix themselves or change or feel better. My job is to just be there for them as best I can and um, try not to get hurt in the process. And be there for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at what point is it appropriate to step out of a relationship? Because that's, I mean, that's what I, what I was writing about. And I'm not just talking parents. I'm talking 
any relationship, you know, what does unconditional love really look like? And Gail says she's, she has an, an experience of that that's hard to put into words. Um, and I asked, mine is like 20 questions. Are there personal boundaries in unconditional love? Is there a middle way? What does that look like if there is? is you know, is the, the, I'm, I'm just just a moment, Gail. Okay. <laughs> um, is the guiding is the guiding light for me to be true to the precepts for myself? But what if the partner is acting inconsistently with those? Um, and then I go: Is the answer you do you and let them do them? But what if, for example, that partner is constantly verbally demeaning you? And I don't just mean that I perceive it as demeaning. I mean, actually, you're so dumb, you're overweight, you know, you're so lazy. Um, you know, you can say those are just words, yet don't they show a mindset of that person toward you in your deepest relationship in a way of viewing you and val valuing or failing to do that? Do you stay? Assuming you're Zen enough and well-practiced enough to stay and just say, oh, those are just words. I'll stay married to this person the rest of my life. Do you leave? But if you leave, isn't that just based on a construct of how someone should um, treat you? So, and what about the concept, or is this just another construct of being evenly yoked? And I don't mean identical to that person, but... Um, but being complementary with that person in terms of gifts, talents, temperament, um, how do we make that these decisions if we've chosen someone um, and find that there's a lot of bumping up against those kinds of differences I named? That's my question. Those are really good answers? questions. They're really good questions. And that's kind of what I wrote about here is, yes, I had a glimpse, but what does that look like in human expression? And I'm, it, it's a constant discovery is what I'm finding out. And it's, it's an open, it's an open question. Um, you know, it really, it really is. And <clears throat> And I think that Joko Beck is talking about practice as a way of kind of dislodging our habitual way of relating and thinking about ourselves with our core belief and relating from that place. And that's where practice comes in. But actually, I wrote down here, how does unconditional love move? What, is it, what does it do? How does it move through me? And I, I can't, I don't know because you can't predict. This is, the, this is the thing, you can't predict it. So just having the question, um, I had the question in my head a while, little while back when I was having an argument and I was able because of practice to stop in the middle of the argument, notice what I was feeling and then actually the question just arose in me. It said, what would love do? And this happened to me twice. I've told this story, I think, before because it made such an impact. And I, I need to, sometimes I feel I just don't practice well enough to get this the way I 
feel it. But when the question arose, what would love do? In one instance, it moved to hug. In the second instance, on another day, the same question arose in the middle of something and it set a boundary. And both those things I could feel were a movement of love. And I don't know how to, what to tell you about that. All I know is that the questions are really, really important. And if you can pause in the middle of what's happening to ask that question, you know, create a space for it, it's, it's pretty interesting. You may not even guess what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, because it's not my ego running the show in that instant. It's not me wanting to know in that one instant, this, you know, little me that needs to know everything to control it. Something else is happening. So yeah, this goes back to uh, the beginning of the going into the dark chapter uh, where Joko says, there is a darkness out of which everything comes, an endless creative potential that's pouring out of our life at every second. Practice is about going into that darkness. Um, so it, it's definitely a not knowing uh, kind of experience. But I, I, my question uh, kind of follows along with yours, Gail. Um, I, let me see, what did I write? Um, I asked is if unconditional love was possible for us as human beings. As humans, we're subject to causes and conditions. Our lives are made up of innumerable threads formed from the 12-fold chain of mutual causality. We are afloat in a sea of relationships, many of which we are not even aware of. The practice of the Brahma-Viharas, especially Metta, could lead us to face and experience these causes, conditions, and relationships with unconditioned loving kindness which is born together with compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. However, big however, these are often described as deep meditative states, which seem to transcend the personal. I wonder if they would necessarily be available to us in our everyday life. Now, you, Gail, uh, have come up with a very good, uh, you, you know, yes, these things can be available to us, but we, it requires an openness to what's happening far beyond what, you know, our, that, our, that little, uh, little egoic self, as, as you uh, pointed out. I, I think we, we've got to have a bigger, vaster view. And sometimes, especially in relationships, oh my, they drag us right down to the to that base layer <laughs> of ego. So just sort of my thoughts on unconditional love. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I, I think I, I am the next one. So kind of, uh, you kind of answer my, uh, what I wrote. Well, I, this is what I have. Um, I said, relate, relatedness is a confession. Um, I was out of home for a long time. I came back a few days ago 
I was looking all around and I saw a river of ants, of ants. What should I do with that? Should I kill them or let them live? I was in a dilemma, but at the end I couldn't let them, um, in the, let them be in the middle of the living room. I realized that I have caused a lot of damage in my life. A lot of beings that have come to my living room had suffered because of me. How to understand relatedness, how to truly make contact, dissolving all the negativity that has been part of me. So that was what I wrote. That's very profound. What was it that was in your living room? Ants. Oh, okay. As we'd say in Texas, ants. But she's, she's in Mexico. Right. So I had to translate into Texan. Are the ants bigger in Mexico? No, they're a smaller one, but there were a lot of them, you know, like a river coming just in the middle of the room, like too many. No, I faced that when Harvey hit Houston and Texas got so much flooding all the way to Austin. The ground was soaked and those sweet little ants, they were just trying not to drown. And so they came into my house by the thousands and thousands, even through the, the where the plates were, the switch and the, and the sockets were. They were just coming in. And I'm like, what do I do? And I had at the time this dog who was a very sick dog. He, the vet had told me it was, he was a rescue dog and he had really bad heartworm and wasn't going to live more than a year. And I thought, oh, I can't let them hurt him. So it was kind of trying to balance what the greater harm would be. So I drowned them on the floor and I kept going, I'm so sorry. I know you want to live just like I want to live. I know that's all you want. I'm so sorry. I can't let you hurt my doggy. And it's like, sometimes we, as Peg said, if you think you can get out of this world without doing harm, you're really naive. Yeah. Well, that, that made me think of my answer to your question about Nelda. And I, I can't remember exactly the question, but, oh, how do you know when to leave a relationship or something? Something like that. Didn't you ask something really? like that? Do you stay? Do you, do you go, oh, those are just words? What, you, know. you can yeah. go with the, you know, are you doing more harm or good? So the, you're writing... I, I looked upon it as you sitting with your pain. Like you, you did it by writing. Me? Uh, no. Uh, oh. Sorry, Margarita? No, Melena. Melena. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, I think you did exactly that. Uh, and there's no real, you know, definitive conclusion. Um, killing ants doesn't make you a horrible person um, and yet you don't want to kill the ants both things can be true at the same time We're so I think tipping points aren't we yeah you know, one ant you might take outside thank you yeah well um I was uh, also thinking, like I have, um, you know, problems with my boyfriend now, and he says that I have hurt him, and you know, I, I hurt ants because it was needed. Uh, but then I was thinking about that, you know, like uh, 
how you harm people and you don't even realize it. Um, and then, I don't know if you know, but uh, Mexico City is a seismic one, like uh, earthquakes. And it has been horrible once, though, like three or four years ago. And while I was killing the ants, I was, um, I was remembering when this last earthquake uh, became or came. Or, and a lot of people, you know, die because of the buildings and stuff. And it was, um, I was thinking about uh, how we play roles, like uh, me with the ants and this situation. And then the earthquake, I remember about that, like uh, something bigger, so much bigger than you, killing mm -hmm. you. And then with this chapter, chapter or chapter? Chapter. Chapter, thank you, that we read um, about authentic relationships, um, how, how we create uh, relationships relationships without even knowing and I kept thinking about um, how the other person reacts even though you want to make it right or you know make things better it's it's difficult how the other person reacts yeah because of you that's very strong mm. one thought that came to mind is that um Sometimes people tell us things and we don't necessarily have to take it as truth. Um, so that's one thing I thought about as you were talking. Uh, should we call it an evening? Yeah, lovely one. Really appreciate this. Getting into the gooey stuff. I'm so <laughs> glad you came, Emily. Thanks. Yeah, I was glad I'm glad I found you guys. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Until next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Next week. Bye.